Hello and welcome to Australian Politics Live. I'm Catherine Murphy, the host of the show, and I'm also political editor of Guardian Australia. My guest this week, we're back into our normal sequence post-election, is Peter Lewis. He runs Essential. Peter and I have collaborated on a fortnightly poll that Essential has produced over the last several years, tracking sentiment about Australian politics. Now, I know a lot of people are still processing the election result, even though we're a couple of weeks now past uh, May 18. Uh, I know from feedback from readers that people are still not entirely comprehending how we could walk into an election contest thinking one thing would happen as a consequence of a very stable poll trend over three years telling us that Labor would win and obviously Scott Morrison was returned to government. So I thought the most productive thing I could do as the poll series springs back into life post-election is to bring Peter in and have a conversation about polling, about where the election result leaves progressive campaigning in Australia, which is something that Peter is also massively involved in. He's not just a pollster, he's also an advocate and a strategist. And to sort of pull apart in some degree of depth what might have gone wrong with opinion surveys in this country over the past three years, I had a lot of fun in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure, Catherine. So we are going to talk about a few things in this episode, but we're going to start with your specialty, which is polling, and uh, and think about, hey, that election. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? Didn't quite pan out the way people thought it would. It certainly didn't. And obviously, I've had cause for reflection over the last few weeks, Um We've gone over the way we collect our data, the sense we make of it, the way we weight it, which is if all the data doesn't quite fit with the Bureau of Stats sort of breakdowns, you sort of weight things up and down. We've asked ourselves questions about whether preference flows were attributed correctly and looked back over three years of what looked like a really baked-in Labor lead and the two-party preferred, which sort of bounced around a little bit but really didn't get outside the range of 53, 47, 51, 49 for a long time and neither did any of the other polls. And we've sort of looked at all that and can tweak things there and force, but they're still polls. Um, They're still an abstraction that tries to give you a view of what a sample of the population's thinking with the thesis that that represents the broader population. But... Thinking it through and looking at it, there was this thing staring us right in the face that no one's ever questioned because the polls have, over the last decade, always been right. Mm. But it's actually quite profound. It's this, that when we take the information, we discard the people that can't answer the question. So if you say, we ask, ask, who are you going to vote for? Then if they say don't know, we say who might you who are you most likely to vote for? And then we ask a third time, so who might you lean towards? And if people still say don't know, we go You're out. And we do it because it's too noisy to leave it in there. So no one wants a two-party preferred that doesn't add up to 100. So mm-hmm. when we reported 53, 47, 12 months ago, there were 13% don't know and we weren't listening to them. And even a week out from the election, when we were reporting 51, 49, which was a tightening, 
there was still 8% who couldn't answer that question. And it was coming through in some of the other data that, you know, we were sharing with The Guardian, the, yep. the, the number of people that said they had yet made up their mind or had very light engagement. Yeah. But think about this. If we'd been four days out from the election and we put a poll out saying the the two-party preferred is 47-45 with 8% undecided still, we would have treated it very differently. A, we would have focused on the last week a lot more. B, we would have treated that 8% with a lot more import than we did. We yeah. just assumed they'd tracked the way everyone else did. So... Underneath that is a kind of a profound insight that as pollsters, we've disenfranchised the disengaged by saying your views don't count because it gets in the way of us it, putting out an elegant figure. Well, yeah, because it creates statistical noise. But before, you know, I'm not going to let you wear your hair shirt entirely here, right? Like that's all logical. Like the, the what you've just laid out yeah. is entirely logical in terms of how you structure a poll. Yeah. There's also another problem, isn't there, which I reckon we should try and tease out, which is that these people are hard to reach, that these Indeed. people are hard to, uh, it's hard to decant the contents of their head because... They've got nothing to say. They've got nothing really? to say. So, so, so then how, if, if the sort of, you know, well, well, let's just step back one step for a minute, right? And because it is possible, of course, that the polls were wrong inside the margin of error. Right, which well, is well. It's also possible they were right inside the that's, margin. Well, of that's error. yeah. That's they actually sorry. That's, were that's correct actually what I mean. The margin yes, of error. Yes, that's um, actually what I mean. That they were correct mm. within the margin of error, and even the way we report the polls at Guardian Australia, we obviously refer to the margin of error. We say what it is. We say whether things are movements inside the margin of error. We're actually we we. we resist kind of beating up small movements within the margin of error in order to signal to readers, look, guys, like, you know, this is this is not, you know, this this is more complicated, right? Dear reader, this is more complicated. And and small movements inside the margin of error just blips. Who knows why that happens, right? But in terms of just sort of exhausting before we really delve into how we reach the genuinely undecideds, how we communicate with them, both as journalists and pollsters and everybody else, like we need to just, I reckon, just say, well, look, the, the polls could have been right within the margin of error. But in a column you wrote for us recently, you said, oh, that's just a cop-out, though, I reckon. Well, so what do, you, what, what do you think? Well, I think, here, here's what I think. I think that the polls were an accurate reflection of the views of people that are engaged enough in the political process to have a view, and they were... I've got no reason to think they weren't accurate for the life of the last parliament, the last three years. Of those that were politically engaged, they tended to think that the government had failed and that Labor's policy positions were preferable. Yeah. Um, no leader in that period had a majority approval, any yes. of them. yeah. But... I don't think it's good enough to say, yeah, you know, we always said it was margin of error. So, you know, because in a way polling's let itself become the scoreboard because, you know, there's nothing else around and it makes, you know, polls more important. So that kind of well, it's makes become... you feel like the centre of the universe a yeah. little bit, I guess. And yeah. I, I, think, I, I, I think there's a couple of other things going on. One is particularly local and regional media has effectively collapsed under the weight of the internet. So there's... 
there's not a whole way of understanding what's going on in communities. Yeah. Um, civil society's kind of broken down. People don't join things anymore. So unions are weaker. There's no such thing as chambers of commerce or anything anymore. Like there's all these institutions that used to make up society that became feedback loops to tell us what's going on. They're not, they're kind of not there anymore. Everyone's mm. just on this one platform sharing stuff and sort of talking to people that believe with them. So polling's become this default arbiter of what people think. And yes. I think that's really, really problematic. And why is it problematic? Like spell it out for because the it, because, because, it's it is, because it because is it's uncertain. Yeah, well, or? A, because <laughs> it is an abstraction. Yeah. B, it's the what, not the why. Yeah. It allows everyone to read into it whatever we like. And we try to ask extra questions to give you know, your readers a little bit more depth on what's going on. But it's still, you know, I always say analysing polls as science meets arts. You've got some numbers and then you try to try to make sense of it and bounce it off other people. But jeepers, if that's all we've got to tell us what's going on, we really are yeah, we're flying a, a little bit blind, aren't we? We're, and, we're in and a then strange talk, time. Yeah. And it does, it does reinforce. If we say our problem is we've got this disengaged group, um, a growing group of disengaged people who don't think politics offers them solutions and don't think public institutions are things that make their world stronger, then how can we be surprised when we haven't actually come up with ways of giving them input into the world you know they're disassociating themselves mm. from. And so, and what does what does it mean for the essential series? Do you think this? I mean, I know you're still uh, you, you're pushing this around in your head, like yeah. how you get to the people who we've been sweeping off the mat for uh, elegance purposes, right? Yeah, so, I'd, what uh, what does it mean? So, there's a bit. A number of the pollsters are talking about sharing a bit of intel and you know doing a little bit of peer. Um, critiquing. Um, there's also a bit of work going on at an industry level to sort of think about coming up with some, I guess, protocols for how data is sort of analysed. And that, I think that's part of it. But I think we're just going to, you know, we're going to continue working the panel just because we've built a decade of data mm. and we want to keep building it. But I don't think we're going to be running many two PP stories with you guys yes. anytime soon. And yeah. I, I am really interested in either going it alone with you guys or working it with the news polls and the others of maybe starting to put undecideds back into mm. our reporting of politics, mm. just because I think it'll force all of us to be a little bit more curious well, does, about what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it does two things. It forces curiosity where we've where we've sort of neglected curiosity for the sake of elegance, mm. right? And it also adds, injects that element of uncertainty because, you know, people like polls in political reporting because they're, a, well, I mean, it's a bit mean to say they're a pseudoscience. They are actually a social science, so we shouldn't call them a pseudoscience, but they, it, to some degree they are, they, they sort of give an evidence base. See, I really enjoy, even though George Meglogenis, if you're listening to this episode, you'll actually send me a bomb in my letterbox, but I enjoy reporting polls, particularly yours, Peter, because there's a bunch of questions about issues that I always find the, the answers and the metrics interesting, right? Something that you think's enormously resonant, you know, usually what comes back via the poll is no one's even heard of it, right? So all of those things are very useful to me as a political reporter and I like, I'm a, I'm a reporter who likes facts, who likes data, who likes evidence, right? So 
I enjoy it from that point of view. I don't enjoy polls as some sort of superficial bodice ripper, you know, look, oh God, it moved one one percentage point within the margin of error. That must mean X. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't myself report polls that way. But I find data sets like that really interesting because here I am in my office. Generating a lot of content. Centre of the universe. Well, well, it's a lovely office where Peter and I are in the office today, and it is a lovely office. But we're very busy now, reporters. We don't travel as much as we used to. We're not out in communities as much as we used to be, although we make an effort at Guardian Australia to do that a lot, and we did it a lot in the mm. campaign. And I think that was absolutely the right judgment because we got we got this disengagement back so strongly everywhere we went in the country. Like it was so mm. profound and palpable. Mm. So, you know, anyway, I enjoy it, but it's sort of, but we've got to, I think, collectively with your stuff and me as the lead reporter, often on the poll series, to do more to inject this uncertainty into these stories. And, and get rid of the scoreboard. So I love polls where you've got an attitude, say an attitude to, you know, do you support an increase in the new start allowance? But you back that up with a question, how much do you think it is? And then you get an insight that people that think it's way more than it is obviously don't support an increase. And it, it kind of gives you a bit more of a read of what's driving particular yeah. baits that really used to work on asylum seekers where people totally overestimated the number of people coming fr- by boat and their sense that there was a crisis. Until the number of people coming by boat sort of exploded <laughs> yeah, 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 and that sure. theory fell away. Yeah. But can I say something else just going back to you? So I reckon the polls have also become this security blanket for media, but also for third-party activists that mm. are trying to buy their way into the media. And this is where I think the polls have been terribly devalued. And um, so we, you know, well, media's been dealing with its technological disruption. Yeah, yeah. We've had ours. It's called RoboPulse. Yes. And RoboPulse. Yes, so let's talk let's about t- this because people listening to this, no, some so, people will know about this, some yeah. people will have no idea about this. So polling originally was door-to-door where someone would go out and knock on the door and then they moved to every corner because they realised the corner house was a quick way of getting a bigger geographic. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then it went to telephone mm-hmm. um, and... We started using an online panel, which is statistically weighted participants who sort of get a mild incentive for sharing their opinions. They might get sent something out every six months or so. But they're all real people answering it, meeting a sample. Robos are amazing disruptions. So what happens with the RoboPoll is that you enter a program, you you basically pre-record a set of questions, you basically enter in all the phone numbers in an electorate or just a 1,000 or a sample, you dial it until you fill up a 1,000, In a typical electorate, it's going to be about a 1% response rate. Oh um, so there's no waiting so or nothing. No, no nothing. it is because then this is where the herding happens because then they'll weight it against what looks right according to the other polls to give it an anchor. What does that mean? But what normally looks it right? does. What does, that, what does that mean, what looks right? Well, if, if it comes back 64, they go, obviously our weighting's out, so we'll go and rework it so it looks like all the other polls when it's on voting intention. Okay. Now, the other thing you've got to know about RoboPulse is they aren't market research. They're actually, they don't have to comply with a market research code of ethics. Right. They're marketing. So stay with me for a minute because this yeah. is really interesting. On a RoboPoll, if I do a poll, I can't personalise and individuate the responses. Like part of the code of ethics is you do the sample, you get rid of the sample. Yeah. Marketing's different. You can build up a database mm-hmm. and enter it in. So you know from that phone number that person's oh, on so that you, phone yeah, number thinks so this and this and you're this. You're collecting that becomes data more. on them. And, and now, then the biggest, 
Yeah, right. The biggest robopole company, which I won't name, um, was bought by a company called Vada, which is a credit rating agency, which actually takes all our credit rating and, and sells that as data. So all the robo-answers go into the credit rating database to give a richer set of data. Guess who bought Vada? The um, banks? Experian, which is a oh. global data. And so they I, I don't even quite get what they use, but they just... They, they sell massive banks of data. And so a robopole is not actually – research isn't the output, it's yes. the input. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so – and all these progressive organisations have been using these robopoles to buy their way into the media because it's only 1200 bucks. It's cheap. cheap it's cheaps, cheap as. But they haven't quite thought through the implications of, A, what's happening to that data at the end of the, the yes. track, but also yes. – Every poll that goes on like that is another poll that real research companies like mine don't do, yeah. which means that the robustness of our models is compromised. Now, Crimea River, like I'm not, not expecting that, but I'm just saying that technological change has, in so many industries, creates cheaper products, yeah. but they rarely produce yes. better products. No, that's and right. And so then right. we have an intelligence failure this election, some would say. We didn't know what was going on. Part of it is the destruction of the media. Part of it's the destruction of real political research. Mm. Part of it's the destruction of social institutions. And it all comes down to our um, challenges to adapt to this really disruptive technology that I feel is starting to swallow us up a little bit, well, Catherine. Well, yes, love. Yes, indeed. And uh, you've written a book about this, which we're going to get to in a minute. Before we I get jumped in... to the plug a bit. No, there, no, so. no, no, no. It's not a plug. It's interesting. We need to talk it through. But just one thing before we move in that direction is that, uh, you know, Essential is, is not only a polling firm, you obviously give a lot of professional advice about advocacy and mm. campaigning and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, you and I were at a conference this week, which we won't talk about because it's Chatham House, but we were we were present there this week uh, giving presentations before a number of progressive groups, uh, all of whom looking down at them, the dear loves, you know. I don't know, what, 200 people in that room or something like that were all looking at us in a state of shock, sort of various shocks and decompressions. So what did, uh, because you take an interest beyond mm. the numbers, mm. you're a strategist basically, mm. Mm. so everyone's got their theory about this election and what went wrong for Labor, mm. you know, the, the alleged favourites based on the false consciousness exercise of three years of data that we don't know whether it's accurate or not. What do you think happened? Okay. The simple thing is that the voter choice when they walked into the booth was, do you want higher taxes? Now, you can unpack that a lot. But the Liberals successfully made the voter choice a risk. It was fermented by distrust of Bill Shorten, but it really came home to roost with this confection of higher taxes, which was taking all the different policies that Labor had come up with on negative gearing and franking credits and family trusts and electric vehicles and wrapping them into big tax. Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't particularly engaged in the election, that was a compelling... Well, well, it's, well it's clearly... Easy. It's easy to understand, clearly, isn't it? And, and backed in by all the yellow money mm. of Clive yes, and Clive. the takeover of the Australian media for a week. On the other side, Labor um, had so many good ideas. They had climate change and renewables. They had early learning. They had affordable housing. They had a yes, national disability insurance scam. Pension adaptation, um, you know, all yeah, kinds of Yeah, you stuff. know. Mm. And 
So there, I think there was two things. One is they wrapped that into a fairness agenda. And on reflection, and it's all clear in the rearview mirror, I didn't see this coming, I've got to admit. Yeah, did you, did you, what did you think? Like, take, your, take yourself back to election night, like 5pm on election oh, night. What no. did you think? No, I, I, I got a sense we were hitting the rocks about the Monday, but that was more from conversations with people right. who were starting to sort of war game what the path for victory for the coalition looked like and it started looking more and more real. There was a sense they were going to pick up the two independencies. They only picked up one of those in die and yeah. um, Wentworth... A kind of there, w- there was a pretty strong th- read that Lindsay and um, Dawson were gone, and then all of a sudden Labor needed to find four or five seats, and then we also knew that if those Northern Tasmanian seats went, then it was then it was a big lift, and then it was mm. you know are there five seats in Victoria? Are there three seats in Perth? That seemed like it. So I had a feeling of doom. I wrote a column on the Thursday, the last poll, saying put the champagne on ice, but have some scotch at hand just mm. in case. Mm. I. I was bringing a lot of people down um, and then got to election night. I always have some friends over in my house and mm-hmm. I was just there with two bottles of red and the cheese plate and not very <laughs> sociable at all. But going back to, so, so Labor put up the um, fairness proposition. I think in retrospect, fairness requires an objective analysis, which requires a degree of engagement. And I also, as I was saying to this group of fantastic political activists and campaigners this week, the the, the strategy had been to campaign to get Labor to adopt great progressive policy. Big success. Mm. But then the the closing of the deal was then how do you change the government? Mm. And there was so much out there. It was so cluttered. There were so many different people handing out on election day. And in a way, I think the ambition of the project got in in the way of the voter choice, Mm. which is what what, why are you voting? Yeah, and there was is, a reason yeah. for everyone to vote, but there wasn't one reason. No, exactly. And that's a really interesting If everything's thought. important, nothing's important. Well, that's, well, there's, there's the clutter issue. Mm. There's the clutter issue. But there's also this slightly, it's, it's a bit hard to describe this accurately, but the, the conversation you're talking about, which is a sort of a, an, in, an enclosed loop, conversation, right? How do we get a Labor Party, a progressive party to maximise the progressive ambition, Mm. right? A whole lot of stakeholders sitting behind Mm. that conversation. To some degree, possibly Labor got a bit captured by that, possibly. Yeah, although... I'm not sorry. You finish your. Well, no, no. Only just I don't. I don't know the answer to this myself. And people who read me regularly will know I'm still <laughs> whacking this stuff around in my mind, still processing. But it's. Uh, I wondered myself on a few occasions during the campaign whether Labor was, in terms of the messaging, conducting a conversation with engaged voters, mm. right? people who, with the mm. rusted ons mm. in essence, and I don't mean this in terms of, you know, the pitch to the mythical centre mm. or, you know, I don't mean that. I just mean the tempo, the character of the conversation, the way it was mm. being conducted. Several times during the campaign, I thought this is a feedback loop here. This mm. is, you're talking to engaged people. Now, the people who will determine this election are the disengaged. So, I don't know, maybe it's more complicated. So, yeah, I, look, I think what's challenged my thinking was, I thought it was a really good strategy to have all these little, not little, but policy sort of clusters because the idea was that people that cared about that would go out to their communities too. So we had a fantastic campaign in early learning where childcare centres were actually delivering information about 
improvements in early learning straight to parents who are hugely disengaged. That made sense. Um, disability, there's a fantastic network of advocates called Every Australian Counts. They were pushing out the NDIS policies through their network. So I thought that the devolved would work. Mm. But what I think I missed was the enduring power of your legacy media mm. to anchor the conversation. Mm. And I feel that the decentralisation was good, but it didn't have the unifying message that worked at the core. Right. So, like, Coalition was all core. There was yeah. a bloke in a baseball cap. Yeah. There was a, you know, a smart guy on ads and a, a guy doing memes, and they kind of, with the discipline of not having anything to talk about, yeah. they actually turned Labor's sort of... Well, they made um, Labor the incumbents. I mean, it's the, that's the only time I've ever seen that happen. But, in but also a confusing, like there was too much and they didn't have the levers of government to help them distill messages. And, you know, something like franking credits, that's right, it's probably something that should be done in government mm. because you need to have the, the levers of bureaucracy to actually think up what it's going to work and target it properly. And yeah. so, yeah. again, really clear in the rearview mirror. And there, there is a lot of, like this was a really tough election for progressives and whether you're involved in campaigning or just reading it through the pages of The Guardian. And I think it's really important not to draw the wrong lessons from the loss. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think if that. we just say it's all too hard, that's probably well, not... Well, the, the, look, at the end of it, right, it's, it's you know, I'm looking at this through a sort of a, a journalist's prism. Mm. The fact of the matter is, like, we've, we've, we have had a really engaging conversation, which we're not quite finished yet because we haven't got to the book, which we're going to do next. But, um, but the fact of the matter is we live and breathe this stuff and invest ourselves in a whole lot of evidence data. We talk to all of the primary players. Like, we, we live and breathe this stuff. And, and we don't entirely know what happened. So trying to sort of present simple you know, kind of aggressively simple characterizations of this was the problem or that was the problem or whatever else is dumb and mm. it just perpetuates where we've been sort of over the last three years. So, look, we've got theories and, and they're reasonable. I think they're legitimate enough to be listened to by an audience. This is why Peter and I, good I friends, are having this conversation <laughs> because we would have this conversation privately and I think we should actually do it in front of yeah, an yeah. audience, right? Uh, but... It's sort of, uh, but look, I mean, we don't know. And that point of overreacting, it's sort of, um, it, it, there is a danger, obviously, when a political party loses an election, particularly one where they, in their own mind, have tried to reframe the rules of an election contest, that the determination they make is that everything's been rebuffed, that the mm. electorate has rebuffed them. And, the you know, it's it's much more complicated than that. But anyway, the book, we've got to do the book, my friends. So... Tell us about that. So it's about the web, that, sort of. That kind of seems so facile and probably is a good reflection of what ended up. So I was really interested initially, I think largely because as a white middle-aged male, Generation X is the only area where I feel like I'm in a minority group about actually writing a book about being Gen X yeah. and hitting 50. Yeah. And it ended up being really self-indulgent and not very useful for anyone. But the, but the most interesting thing we've lived through is the... The, 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 what I call the web. Yes. Um, and yes. I don't know a lot about like, but I remember growing up before it, I remember how exciting and amazing I thought it was going to make the world and how I totally signed up to it. Yeah, and now I look at where we are now and I kind of call it the four Ds, distraction, denial, 
division displacement. So, you know, we can't focus anymore. There's so much noise. We can't even agree that we need to do stuff or the planet's gone. Mm. Um, the world's falling. You know, get, it's not bringing people together. It's pulling people further apart. And we're about to, you know, we're giving these platforms data that churns it through to replace us as workers or mm. sell us stuff. Mm. So I'm saying where's the good st- side of this? And so there's a bit of a meditation on that. And so the politics is there, comes Is there into a good it. side? Because I've, I wrote a little book last year on similar vein but through my own professional prism. Yours is a lot, broader, Yeah, yours is a lot better. But, oh, come, off um, come off it. No, no. But did you, get to, did you get to any sort of place of optimism? I mean, I sort of had to force myself, honestly, to get to a place of optimism. I reckon it comes down to... We've, we've ended up with a relationship with that technology, forgetting the idea was technology was to facilitate us having a relationship with each other. Yep. And I think it's a notion of human sovereignty back into the way the web develops. I feel that we're kind of at the cusp of where, you know, our forebears were when they realised kids were in factories at the end of the Industrial Revolution and things weren't quite going right. And out of that came the factory laws, the Guardian, and a whole bunch of great social institutions that actually allowed for a fairer distribution of the benefits of that technological change. So the hope is that we are approaching a moment where things change. I think that requires stuff from government, definitely, things from corporates and organisations, creating what is you know, healthy usage of data for individuals. But it all comes down to us because if we just let this roll over the top of us, then we can't complain. So mm-hmm. back to our original thing, I think that the really interesting sort of secondary debate out of this election is not just talking about how to win the game next time, but what's the stadium we're playing in? Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, using this as a moment to think about truth in political advertising on social media platforms, how, you know, data is being used to micro-target voters, how this technology is making the disengaged further less engaged and whether there's ways of using it for the opposite. So I think there are amazing opportunities to use the technology and it's still the the idea that you can access any bit of information anywhere is just amazing but I feel like we've all lost our purpose and why we were doing it in the first place so I know that's a bit of a, a brain spaghetti but that kind of is 280 pages compressed into no, 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 five I minutes don't. so you know I'm, you get the I'm vibe looking, I, I do I'm looking forward to reading it and I know exactly where you are in the headspace it must be a gen x fixation we must be the we must be the sort of, well, well, we were kind of the tech evangelists and now we're on the other side of our own evangelism. And we've kind of grown kind of, up now. It's on us. Yeah. You can't blow the baby boomers no, forever. No, I mean, it's tempting. Oh, I mean, it's kind of weird. Like these, the, the two leaders are our age. Yes, I know. And I still. I know. It's, it it's, used to be for grown-ups, this stuff. I know, and here we are having this conversation. <laughs> anyway, that's a perfect note to end on. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great fun. Absolute pleasure, Catherine. Well, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to Miles and to Hannah, producers extraordinaire as always. Don't forget the regular call out that I do at the end of every episode. If you do like the listening, do tell your friends about it. Do share it on social media. Do tell other people about it. We are back and alive on the other side of the election and we'll be back in our weekly sequence. Uh, Until we meet again, take care.